This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Lovely Podcast. Last episode, we concluded our series on George Bernard Shaw, a man who believed that art should be didactic. And this week, we explore another artist, Mary Fisher, uh, who also has something important to say. Fisher advocates through her sculptures, her quilts, and textiles, but really also through her speeches. She's authored six books, received honorary doctorates, and has traveled around the world as a special representative for the United Nations. Fisher first emerged into the American national spotlight on August 19th in 1992 when she ascended to the podium in Houston, Texas at the 1992 Republican National Convention. She spoke for a little over 10 minutes in the middle of the day, uh, long before the famous keynote politicians were going to speak that evening. She was not a politician. Uh, She stood before the crowd of partisan delegates as the daughter of a wealthy and powerful fundraiser. Uh, She was an advisor to former President Ford, but that was not why she was there. She was there to announce that she, like Rock Hudson, Magic Johnson and Freddie Mercury and thousands of others was HIV positive. And her speech, A Whisper of AIDS, uh, rocked not just the stunned onlookers from within the hall, but also the millions who watched the broadcast on television. It's been ranked by Oxford Press as one of the 100 best American speeches of the 20th century. That's some pretty good company. Uh, today, we will read her remarkable speech, discuss the rhetorical situation in which it was delivered, and the impact that Fisher has made on this important global issue. Well, if you've listened to our discussions of other nonfiction pieces, uh, not just speeches, you may have heard us reference Aristotle, the father of rhetoric, at least here in the West. He has informed speakers and writers for literally a couple thousand years. According to Aristotle, all speakers must do three essential things to be effective. First, we must establish our credibility. When anyone gets up to speak, whether you realize it or not, 
You're going to ask yourself, why should I believe what you have to say? Secondly, we must open the hearts of our listeners. They must not just hear words. They need to be moved to act, to feel. Thirdly, we must create a line of reasoning that makes sense. Our reasons must connect with each other and add up to a conclusion that compels us to move forward in the direction provided by the speaker. These three elements constitute what many call the rhetorical triangle. It's easy to understand what to do. I mean, lots of us understand that. It is much harder to do it well. Uh, The ancient Greeks called this executing ethos, pathos, logos, And the greatest practitioners in the world over time have moved the human race to do great things, but also to commit, you know, horrific atrocities just by using their words. Today, especially as we look at the extremely impactful speech, we need to discuss another ancient rhetorical concept. And this term is kairos, time. The Greeks used it not to mean chronology on a clock, but to mean timeliness, The timing of a speech, the concept of timeliness of something. And we understand this all the time because how many times have you heard somebody say, I don't know if this is the right time to tell you. And then they, you know, drop some horrible bombshell (laughs) or I'm waiting for the time to say. We intuitively know that sometimes the timing of something makes or breaks our argument. Part of what made the speech, Whispers of Age, so impactful was this element of kairos. Not many expected this person to speak at this place and at this time about this topic that not many in America were willing to talk about, but all were thinking about, the AIDS epidemic. The kairotic moment, the timing and atmosphere of this speech and all of its antagonism proved to be just as significant as any metaphor that she would make, any antithesis or contrast or any other rhetorical choice that Fisher chose to make on that famous day. Gary, because the timing is so important and it's been, you know, kind of long ago, I think it's important for us to understand what makes a speech about AIDS in 1992 at a Republican national convention, an American moment of notice. Well, to understand that, we must go back to June 5th, 1981. Uh, The CDC issued a report that really almost no one paid any attention to. Five gay men in Los Angeles had been infected by a rare fungal infection. Two of them were dead already. In July, that number was over 26, but the infections were not isolated in Los Angeles Um, The HIV outbreak primarily affected the gay community, and it was assumed to be a virus, but that was all that people knew. A year later, the CDC reported cases among hemophiliacs, and that's an indication that the disease was bloodborne. On September 24th, 1982, the CDC applied a name to this new disease, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, otherwise known as AIDS. Uh, By mid-December, Infants were born showing signs of the disease, but the number of cases in the gay community was particularly devastating. People would get sick and die of pneumonia. Sometimes people would just disappear. And by 1982, terror had really set in. Something was happening and people were dying and doctors were guessing as to what it was. 
1983, the HIV virus was identified and a screening test was developed. The screening test revealed that AIDS was widespread and it was a global outbreak. But AIDS became immediately divisive. Uh, Many, even medical professionals, insisted on calling it the gay disease. It was not only an inaccurate label, but also a very uh, unhelpful and cruel one. It created issues in AIDS funding, research funding. It created a culture of shame around the disease. The social implication was if you had AIDS, it was because of various lifestyle choices. And your lifestyle choices were causing death in the world. The AIDS outbreak was massive, but the world wanted to talk about blame. In 1987, the first antiretroviral medication became available, but it was prohibitively expensive for all except the incredibly wealthy. And by the end of the 1980s, there was an estimated 400,000 cases worldwide. Um, in 1991, Magic Johnson announced he had HIV, which helped dispel the stereotype that it was a gay disease, as it was being called. A few days after the Johnson announcement, Freddie Mercury of Queen died of the disease, and his death was in November of 1991. And so fear is the climate in the world, and blame, as usual, is the name of the game in politics. The homosexual community was considered by many to be an unacceptable fringe element of society, but simultaneously it was at the heart of this tragic and deadly epidemic. 1992 was an election year in the United States. This is the rhetorical situation that Mary Fisher engages as she stands to speak at the Republican National Convention. Well, let's talk about that political moment specifically, uh, the details about that convention. I think they support the point you're trying to make. You know, political conventions are, by design, incredibly divisive events. And The entire goal of a political convention is to energize the base of your party and to make stark contrast to the other party. You know, our party is good. The other one is evil. Our party is about democracy. The other party is about tyranny. Uh, In America, both political parties do this to this day, and they have done it since John Adams and Thomas Jefferson terrorized each other in the very first presidential election after the departure of George Washington. So it's not new. Political convention speeches are polarizing. They are emotionally driven. And in 1992, this meant by starting a Republican convention with a man by the name of Pat Buchanan. He delivered a speech that was so inflammatory and so polarizing that he was banned from speaking at the convention four years later in 1996, even though he had won the New Hampshire primary. The name of his speech today is called Culture Wars. He spoke specifically about homosexuality, and in 1992, this brought about it all the subtext of AIDS and this mysterious disease that was terrorizing the world. And when Mary Fisher got up to speak on day three of the convention, no one was expecting what they got. Well, let me read her introduction. Less than three months ago at platform hearings in Salt Lake City, I asked the Republican Party to lift the shroud of silence which has been draped over the issue of HIV-AIDS. I have come tonight to bring our silence to an end. I believe a message of challenge, not self-congratulation. I want your attention, not your applause. I would have never have asked to be HIV positive. But I believe that in all things, there is a good purpose. And I stand before you and before the nation gladly. 
So she begins with uh, a metaphor, and she draws attention to it with alliteration. I asked the Republican Party to lift the shroud of silence, which has been draped over the issue of HIV-AIDS. In other words, the position of the Bush administration for which she was speaking was to depoliticize a highly politicized disease, to talk about it in the open, those things that had only been muttered about in secret. This position was not only unexpected, it was shocking. It changed the mood in the room. All good Protestant preachers know that if you change emotions, you open up a person emotionally to listening to your line of reasoning. And that is exactly what she did. She opened up people's hearts. That expresses exactly what every delegate experienced and has afterwards talked about. Uh, the mood changed. The Boston Globe noted that the noisy Astrodome grew still and hundreds of delegates froze in the aisles. Cal Thomas said her speech silenced the delegates even more completely than the invocations and the benedictions. <laughs> so more than the prayers. Well, let's keep reading the background section of her speech. The reality of AIDS is brutally clear. 200,000 Americans are dead or dying. A million more are infected. Worldwide, 40 million or 60 million or 100 million infections will be counted in the coming years. But despite science and research, White House meetings and congressional hearings, despite good intentions and bold initiatives, campaign slogans and hopeful promises, despite it all, the epidemic which is winning tonight. In the context of an election year, I ask you here in this great hall or listening in the quiet of your home to recognize that the AIDS virus is not a political creature. It does not care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. It does not ask whether you are black or white, male or female, gay or straight, young or old. Well, of course, the data speaks for itself, uh, but it's worth highlighting a few more details. You know, from our vantage point, 30 years later, almost to the day, and, and even after the COVID-19 pandemic, it's hard to imagine the impact of this mysterious disease. And in 1990, President George H.W. Bush signed a bill to allocate $220 million in federal funds for care and treatment of people with AIDS, but that was nowhere near enough, and America knew it. AIDS, in 1992, was the leading cause of death for American men aged 25 to 44. Beloved tennis star Arthur Ashe, the only African-American man to win the singles title at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open and the Australian Open, had contracted HIV via a blood transfusion during a heart surgery. He died in February of 92. In April, before the convention, uh, the Freddie Mercury tribute concert for AIDS awareness in London's Wembley Stadium drew a crowd of over 72,000 people. Well, Fisher builds a line of reasoning around one central metaphor. Listen for it. The metaphor will be the one of the family. Her speech is inclusive. It's not divisive. Her central idea, we are all human. We are all one. And in light of that, she wants something from her audience. Let's read it. Tonight, I represent an AIDS community whose members have been reluctantly drafted from every segment of American society. Though I am white and a mother, I am one with a black infant struggling with tubes in a Philadelphia hospital. 
though I am female and contracted this disease in marriage and enjoy the warm support of my family. I am one with the lonely gay man sheltering a flickering candle from the cold wind of his family's rejection. This is not a distant threat. It is a present danger. The rate of infection is increasing fastest among women and children. Largely unknown a decade ago, AIDS is the leading killer of young adult Americans today, but it won't be for long. Because unlike other diseases, this one travels. Adolescents don't give each other cancer or heart disease because they believe they're in love. But HIV is different, and we have helped it along. We have killed each other with our ignorance, our prejudice, and our silence. We may take refuge in our stereotypes, but we cannot hide there long, because HIV asks only one thing of those it attacks. Are you human? And this is the right question. Are you human? Because people with HIV have not entered into some alien state of being. They are human. They have not earned cruelty, and they do not deserve meanness. They don't benefit from being isolated or treated as outcasts. Each of them is exactly what God made, a person. Not evil, deserving of our judgment. Not victims, longing for our pity. People, ready for support and worthy of compassion. Her speech, uh, in contrast with almost every political speech in Almost any political setting ever calls for understanding and compassion. In this case, it's a call for solidarity for all people with AIDS, whoever they are and however they contract the disease, not just innocent victims. And she wants us to do something and to do it now. She's speaking directly to the stigmatizing nature surrounding the public discourse of this disease. And her argument will be, it does not matter one bit how a person contracted disease. We are one and we are family. And this is not what we call rhetoric of the past, because rhetoric of the past is interested in laying blame. Who caused this problem? Who failed? Who had the chance to solve it in the past and failed? Exactly. And this is what we would expect in a political convention. It's what we would expect from a partisan in any setting. Um, she's not blaming anyone at all, at least not directly. If there is blame to be had, it's on those within her earshot, both in person and on TV. And the blame must go to those who practice the victim shaming. This is what we call rhetoric of the future. The language of conjecture. She looks to the future. The focus here is the rhetoric of decision-making. The facts of the past are not in dispute. We all know that facts are always about the past. But when we talk about the future, we're not talking about facts because we're talking about things that haven't happened yet. And that's what Fisher's doing. She's looking into the future. And the future isn't good. Not for her personally, not for those who already are HIV positive, but also not for anyone who has blood and is human. Let's read some more of her speech. My call to you, my party, is to take a public stand no less compassionate than that of President and Mrs. Bush. They have embraced me and, and my family in memorable ways. In the place of judgment, they have shown affection. In many difficult moments, they have raised our spirits. In the darkest hours, I have seen them reaching not only to me, but also to my parents, armed with, with that stunning grief and special grace that comes only to parents who have themselves leaned too long over the bedside of a dying child. 
With the president's leadership, much good has been done. Much of the good has gone unheralded, as the president has insisted. Much remains to be done. But we do the president's cause no good if we praise the American family, but ignore a virus that destroys it. We must be consistent if we are to be believed. We cannot love justice and ignore prejudice, love our children and fear to teach them. Whatever our role as parent or policymaker, we must act as eloquently as we speak, else we have no integrity. My call to the nation is a plea for awareness. If you believe you are safe, you are in danger. Because I was not hemophiliac, I was not at risk. Because I was not gay, I was not at risk. Because I did not inject drugs, I was not at risk. My father has devoted much of his lifetime to guarding against another holocaust. He is part of the generation who heard Pastor Neumoller come out of the Nazi death camps to say, They came after the Jews and I was not a Jew, so I did not protest. They came after the trade unionists and I was not a trade unionist, so I did not protest. They came after the Roman Catholics and I was not a Roman Catholic, so I did not protest. Then they came after me and there was no one left to protest. The lesson history teaches is this. If you believe you are safe, you are at risk. If you do not see this killer stalking your children, look again. There is no family, no community, no race or religion, no place left in America that is safe. Until we genuinely embrace this message, we are a nation at risk. Tonight, HIV marches resolutely towards AIDS in more than a million American homes, littering its pathway with the bodies of the young, young men, young women, young parents, young children. One of the families is mine. If it is true that HIV inevitably turns to AIDS, then my children will inevitably turn to orphans. My family has been a rock of support. My 84-year-old father, who has pursued the healing of the nations, will not accept the premise that he cannot heal his daughter. My mother refuses to be broken. She still calls me at midnight to tell wonderful jokes that make me laugh. Sisters and friends and my brother Philip, whose birthday is today, all have helped carry me over the hardest parts. I am blessed, richly and blessed deeply, to have such a family. It's not an accident that there are so many references to family in this speech. There is nothing more human than family. For many, there's nothing more sacred. Her argument will ultimately hinge on the idea that we are all one family. However, there's another reason to do this. We have talked about how essential it is for any speaker to establish his credibility, the Greek word ethos. Jay Henricks, in his famous text, Thank You, thank you for arguing, cited an anonymous contemporary of Aristotle. He says this, a person's life persuades better than his words. Fisher's life, Fisher's family are front and center in her argument. Her parents were there, onlookers, they're in the crowd. Her children, they're toddlers. Fisher knew her audience. The people in her audience, many of them prided themselves as beacons of family values. Many in her audience were religious. Family was an important value embedded in the political platform of the political party she was speaking about. 
Her argument here relies on her ability to link her family credentials with her position as an AIDS victim and then to link AIDS victims to the families she's addressing in that audience. There are so many references to family in these paragraphs. I mean, I have to wonder, how did she contract AIDS and who is her family? And obviously, she's from a prominent family. I know. I think everybody uh, reading her speech has those questions. And I do want to point out that it's not all that easy to find out how Fisher contracted HIV. She doesn't advertise it. And it's not because she's ashamed but that she really believes we have to get to that place in our society where how you got something doesn't matter. Her whole life, she's been about de-objectifying people with AIDS. For her, she wants to identify with all victims and not make the conversation about how you got the disease. She wants to do away with victim shaming in any form. But... Having said that, it is in her biography, so I think it's okay to share. So, uh, Gary, tell us a little bit about Mary Fisher's family. Well, you may be surprised to know that Fisher's family is not the uh, Leave it to Beaver perfect nuclear family, and she's a product of divorced parents, but by virtue of her mother's second marriage, she's from a prominent family, and her stepfather, Max Fisher, not only was a multimillionaire, but also a devoted philanthropist, and Originally, he was involved in uh, many Jewish causes, but throughout the course of his life, his influence both in politics and in humanitarian causes really expanded exponentially. And through family connections, Mary uh, worked, among other places, uh, impressive places, you know, as the first female advance man for the president. Um, she was also an artist. In 1987, Fisher married a fellow artist by the name of Brian Campbell. You know, they fell in love, they married, they moved to Florida, and they started a family. In uh, 1990, Campbell requested a divorce. In 1991, he informed Fisher that he was HIV positive. He contracted it sharing a needle while using drugs before they had even met. Uh, Fisher tested positive, but their two sons, Max and Zachary, who she refers to multiple times in a speech, they both tested negative. And, if you look at her autobiography, you see being a political activist wasn't a lifelong ambition for her. I mean, she was a socialite. Uh, sure, she was a philanthropist, but she had more in common with the delegates to the Republican National Convention than she did with the majority of AIDS victims. And as you note, she's not a hemophiliac. She's not a gay man. She's not a drug user. But, by the way, neither are most AIDS patients today. And the demographic most vulnerable to AIDS are women and children living in poverty in Africa. But not all of you have been so blessed. You are HIV positive, but dare not say it. You have lost loved ones, but you dare not whisper the word AIDS. You weep silently. You grieve alone. And many of those who have AIDS not only deal with a deadly disease, they deal with stigma, isolation, fear. And that's what she's highlighting in this very short paragraph. We see Fisher expands her definition of family to embrace all people. She invokes again metaphorical language of a whisper, the weeping and silence of a human that's been abandoned. So many times she references herself as a mother and a daughter, and she stresses these roles as part of her identity 
by framing the AIDS community as a family. And she's directly appealing to the values of her audience. And later on in her activist career, she will stop using the metaphor of the family and begin using the metaphor of the pilgrim, something she found to be a more suitable analogy. In later speeches with a diverse audience, she would find it more useful to think of people with AIDS as pilgrims, like in the Christian classic um, Pilgrim's Progress. We're all walking together, marching toward a common destination. But here at this specific place and time, the family is the overriding image that we see. And it could be our family or better, it is our family that is at risk. I have a message for you. It is not you who should feel shame. It is we. We who tolerate ignorance and practice prejudice. We who have taught you to fear. We must lift our shroud of silence, making it safe for you to reach out for compassion. It is our task to seek safety for our children, not in quiet denial, but in effective action. Someday our children will be grown. My son, Max, now four, will take the measure of his mother. My son, Zachary, now two, will sort through his memories. I may not be here to hear their judgments, but I know already what I hope they are. I want my children to know that their mother was not a victim. She was a messenger. I do not want them to think, as I once did, that courage is the absence of fear. I want them to know that courage is the strength to act wisely when most we are afraid. I want them to have the courage to step forward when called by their nation or their party and give leadership no matter what the personal cost. I ask no more of you than I ask of myself or of my children. To the millions of you who are grieving, who are frightened, who have suffered the ravages of AIDS firsthand, have courage and you will find comfort. To the millions who are strong, I issue this plea. Set aside prejudice and politics to make room for compassion and sound policy. To my children, I make this pledge. I will not give in, Zachary, because I draw my courage from you. Your silly giggle gives me hope. Your gentle prayers give me strength. And you, my child, give me the reason to say to America, you are at risk. And I will not rest, Max, until I have done all I can to make your world safe. I will seek a place where intimacy is not the prelude to suffering. I will not hurry to leave you, my children. But when I go, I pray that you will not suffer shame on my account. To all within the sound of my voice, I appeal. Learn with me the lessons of history and of grace. So my children will not be afraid to say the word AIDS when I am gone. Then their children and yours may not need to whisper it at all. God bless the children and God bless us all. Good night. Her line of reasoning is clear. The speech in some sense isn't confrontational. She concedes that science and research has been done to fight AIDS but the need is more critical than we are willing to admit or perhaps even understand. She's deductive. Premise one, AIDS kills. Premise two, AIDS travels. AIDS is a disease we often pass on to people we claim to love. Victims of AIDS are humans and therefore worthy of compassion, not shame. Conclusion, we must unite and fight our common enemy. In many ways, the story of AIDS is a success story and 
Today, the rate of infection has held steady at approximately 40,000 per year for more than a decade. And therapeutics have gone from costing thousands of dollars uh, to being much more affordable. And, you know, according to Anthony Fauci, who's been on the front line of the AIDS epidemic since the early 1980s, we know as much or more about HIV than virtually any other microbe or virus we've ever studied. HIV is not an immediate death sentence. And having said that, uh, Fauci also says we're 26 years into the HIV pandemic, but history will judge us by what we do in the next 26 years as much as by what we accomplished in the first 26. And in 2020, approximately 690,000 died worldwide of AIDS-related illnesses. And although that's a high number, that's 60% below the peak, which we reached in 2004. And that's encouraging uh, when we think about the fact that this disease was only recognized in 1981. And at one time, a diagnosis of HIV was certain and almost an immediate death sentence. Sometimes people died within a few weeks. So in some sense, we have something to be proud of. But we don't have a vaccine and we don't have a cure. We have hope. I read an article about Fisher in 2000. She was in Soweto, South Africa. Fisher was speaking to a room full of women. All of them had HIV. At that time, Fisher was 52, and she looked at the women, hugged every woman in the room, and said this, We're all the same. She and her sons, Max and Zach, they took Polaroids and handed them out to happy women in the room, and the women were happy to be remembered and and to remember this moment. More recently, I've looked at her website and saw that she has recently witnessed the birth of her grandchild, something in 1992 she probably wouldn't have believed she would ever see. Indeed. In her case, uh, yet her story is not the story of every AIDS victim. Uh, Today, I think a lot of us think AIDS isn't the threat it was in 1992, so we've settled in some ways into a complacency similar to the one that caused Fisher to speak. And A Whisper of AIDS was a timely speech in 1992, but it is considered great because the theme she invoked, um, the argument she makes, extends beyond 92. It extends beyond American politics. It extends beyond AIDS. It extends beyond even science, actually. Um, There is more to be done in the research of AIDS as well as the uh, distribution of life-saving medications. There's also more to be done in extending grace and compassion in so many other areas as well. That is Fisher's call, a call to embrace our common humanity in compassion and with grace, uh, a reminder for all peoples in all ages in many, many ways. So thank you all for listening. Next week, we begin our series on Harper Lee and her work, To Kill a Mockingbird. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share this episode with a friend or a colleague. Subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and feel free to use any of our uh, free teaching materials if you're an English teacher. Uh, You can purchase merchandise there. You can even make a donation. But most importantly, we look forward to visiting with you again next week. Peace out.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.